Um, it's been tough to live for Jesus. And you wonder, well, is this normal? Is it normal I should feel that there's opposition against me? Well, if you feel like that, it's been a great morning to come. Because God's Word has something to say to you. Um, maybe you're thinking, well, how long will it be like this? Um, I mean, I've trusted Jesus. I've entered God's kingdom. And yet, actually, I'm just weary and discouraged by the Christian life. And um, it's tough. How long is it going to be like this? When, when's it going to end? When, when's God's kingdom going to come in all its fullness? How long will it be before that comes about? When will it come about? Uh, there's been a lot of fascination about that topic, hasn't there, in the last few weeks? Um, this whole notion that somehow God will decisively come and enter into history and bring the end of the world is something that the media thinks is utterly ridiculous, utterly a joke, that actually there's a moment that's going to come and God's going to stop the world as we know it, and he's going to bring in the new heavens, the new earth, a kingdom without suffering and pain. Well, this has become a, a real fresh joke, hasn't it, in the last few weeks with uh, the one, this chap, Harold Camping, uh, who predicted on the family radio program um, in, a, in California, where else, that uh, the rapture would take place on May the 21st. He was absolutely adamant that that was the case. And, of course, it was great amusement to the media when May the 22nd came around without apparent change. And uh, he's taken the classic line of failed predictors by saying that something spiritual happened on May the 21st. And actually, he's moved the prediction to October the 21st. And you can keep donating to his program if you're interested. Now, of course, the moment that anyone predicts a date and a time, you know that they're false teachers, don't you? As soon as you see a prediction, you know, write them off, they're false teachers. Because Jesus was quite clear in Mark chapter 13, no one knows the, the day or the hour, Jesus says, except the Father. Um, so don't worry about October the 21st. may happen October the 20th, I don't know, but uh, it's certainly not going to happen on the 21st. And as we come to these final three chapters of Zechariah, I want us to see that actually that, that is what we are talking about. We are talking about the last days as we come to chapters 12 to 14 in the book of Zechariah. You might want to turn to page 957 in the church Bibles, page 957. Unfortunately, folk like Harold Camping um, give plenty of opportunity for ridicule. But I want us to be clear what the Bible does have to say about the last days. We're going to be looking at these three chapters over the next two Sundays as they deal with this important biblical teaching of the end times. Just to remind you, before we read it, that this was a prophecy of Zechariah given over 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Zechariah said and wrote these words. And as I read this section, I want you to notice the repetition of this phrase, on that day. All right? On that day. So let's read from Zechariah chapter 12. 
This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a brazier in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, You must die, because you've told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I'll turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I'll bring into the fire. I'll refine them like silver and test them like gold, and they will call on my name, and I'll answer them. I will say, they are my people, and 
they will say, the Lord is our God. Just turn over to chapter 14 and verse 6. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, the living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. This is God's word. You might want to turn my mic off for a moment as I blow my nose. Nose is a terrible thing to have as a preacher. Did you notice the repetition? On that day. On that day. Well, let's be clear that what Zechariah uh, is prophesying about and looking forward to when he says, on that day, he's, he's writing and speaking of the final day when God's kingdom comes. Look again how this prophecy starts in chapter 12, verse 1. An oracle... This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. This is God speaking. And who is this God? Well, this is the God who who made everything, who began everything, who created the heavens and the earth, who um, creates the vital spark of life in every human being. He is the God who has the right to rule over everything because he made everything. But that's not the world we see now, is it? This world does not rightfully acknowledge his rightful rule. Uh, This is a messed up world. And, And just week after week, the stories of the papers should keep reminding us and shocking us that this is a messed up world. This is a world where specialist care facilities for special needs people can become a place of torture. And suffering. Now, how can this be? Are these uniquely wicked individuals? No, my friends, this, this, is, this is the sin of our hearts. When we usurp God's right to rule, we act as if we're the most important person. And others will get hurt in the process. It is a messed up world. And this God who began everything has a purpose and a plan to establish his kingdom once more. That's what we saw at the, uh, in chapter 14, verse 9. There's a day coming when the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord and his name the only name. We're, 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 the whole of history is moving to this point where it will be unmistakably clear for all that the Lord is king. And on that day is a phrase that just signals that God is, is at work bringing everything to this end. On that day, things are moving to that day. History really is the story of, uh, from, from God's creation to God's new creation. That's where history is heading. And these chapters are all about the final day when God's kingdom comes. Now, do I need to spell out how relevant this is? You know, God is telling us where all of history is going. 
Uh, does that have any relevance for you in your life of business, uh, work, your family, uh, world history? Does it have any significance? Yes. All of history is moving to this end. This could not be any more relevant. As I said earlier, Zechariah is a, is a prophet and he's writing 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And what he communicates here is not sort of a newspaper report, but a series of word pictures that are almost like um, different camera angles on this day. And it's, it's like he presents four movie documentaries, four little movie shorts to help us look at this day. And we're just going to work through the text to see what they are. Uh, first picture, first little movie, uh, in verses 2 to 9 of chapter 12, a war against Jerusalem. Verse 3, On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. So the, 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 here's this movie, and the, and, and, and the scene is uh, the nations of the earth, they're coming together in opposition uh, against God, and they're coming to show that by attacking Jerusalem. But you know what? The outcome of this war will be the defeat of the nations. That's what's prophesied here. Because God is at work in protecting Jerusalem and in the overthrow of all the enemies. So verse 2 Jerusalem will be like a cup of judgment that when the nations try and drink it, it will leave them legless and reeling. Verse 3, Jerusalem will be an immovable rock and they'll hurl themselves against it and all they'll do is injure themselves, those who seek to attack it. And in verse 6, the leaders of Judah will be like a hot burning stove that will burn up those who gather in opposition around it. And this will be the case because of God. Verse 7, God will save. The Lord will save the dwellings. God will save, verse 7. Verse 8, God will shield. And verse 9, God will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And all this will happen when? On that day, right? Let's go a little bit. Pentecostal. Let's all say on that day. On that day. Well, that's all on that day, all right? Wasn't too bad, was it? Second video scene. Great mourning over fallen leaders. Look at verses 10 to 14. See, after the war is over, instead of joy because of the victory, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem as they realize that their supreme commander was killed in the battle. Look at verse 10. And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Who is the one pierced? Who is the one speaking? Well, in context, who is it? It's God. It is God. 
Here is one of the great mysteries in the book of Zechariah. The word pierced is translated stab in the next chapter, and it literally means a death blow. And who causes this piercing, this killing blow? Not the enemies, but the very ones that God was protecting in Jerusalem. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. When's that going to happen? Together? On that day. On that day. On that day, there will be great mourning as the people of Jerusalem realize that they have killed their supreme commander. Deep mourning. Like a family would mourn for the loss of their only child, a firstborn son. National mourning, like the the way the nation wept when good King Josiah was killed in the plain of Megiddo by an arrow that pierced him, delivering a death blow. And God's Spirit, it says in verse 10, will be poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem on that day to cause deep mourning and repentance for what they have done. Now, how could this possibly be? (laughs) Can you imagine? Zechariah is receiving this prophecy from God. He speaks it and he writes it and he must think, what? How, How can this be? How can it be that God could possibly be pierced? How can it be that the immortal God will receive a killing wounds? And that this could be done by Israel in Jerusalem. How on earth could this be? And yet it will happen when? On that day. Third video scene. Chapter 13. Verse 1. A fountain that cleanses. On that day. A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that very same day, when the battle is won, when God is pierced, a fountain of cleansing will be opened up that deals with the problem of sin. And this has always been the problem. Uh, 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 that a holy God has not been able to continue a relationship with people is because of their rebellion and their sin. This has always been the problem. In Israel's past, this covenant God had, had, had made a relationship with them and yet they had consistently broken it because of their sin. And the sin of the people had cursed the land in which they'd lived. They'd filled it with idolatry. They'd filled it with false prophecy, which I think is what's been talked about there in that section. And all of that, Zechariah prophesied, would be cleansed and would be restored by this ever-flowing fountain of cleansing that would open up when? On that day, right? Fourth picture, the striking of God's Messiah, verse 7 to 9. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I'll turn my hand against the little ones. Now, this is 
another perplexing verse, isn't it? This is surprising. This is mysterious. Now, God is normally the one who is praised in the Psalms as as the one who protects the weak and the vulnerable. But here he commands that a good shepherd who is closely identified with him in some way is to be struck down with the result that that the sheep will be scattered, the flock will be gone. God's hand will, will apparently turn against the little ones of the flock. Now, who is this man so closely identified with God? Well, if you've been with us as we've worked through Zechariah, you'll be thinking about a king already mentioned back in Zechariah chapter 9. The king that would come bringing salvation. There would be the joy of Jerusalem as he came, coming riding in on a donkey. And yet this king, as we read on, would be one that would be met with opposition from the, the, the leadership of the time. Now why should God strike this anointed king? The one that he promised would come. Why is he striking this king, this good king? This good shepherd of the sheep. I mean the results, look at the results. It spreads the flock. Two-thirds end up perishing, it says in verse 8. And the remaining third, verse 9 face further hardships and trials described as a fire. What what is going on here? Well, because of these actions, verse 9, what will result will be a refined, purified people. Look at verse 9 again. This third I will bring into the fire, and I'll refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. If you read from the beginning of the Bible, you would recognize that phrase that, uh, that, uh, that God will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God is a classic way of God describing this happy, together, covenant relationship. And the consequences of this striking of the shepherd, this suffering, this fire, will be a refining that will create a people who are the, the people who are in proper relationship with God, enjoying that covenant relationship with God, where God says, these are my people, and the people gladly says, this is our God. And all these things will take place when? On that day, on that day. These are the events of the last day that bring in God's everlasting kingdom in a renewed and transformed world. Now, how mysterious it must have been for Zechariah uh, as he spoke of it. How could all these strange things come to pass? How could it possibly happen? (laughs) Well, if you're new to Christian things, we're so glad you're here. Because guess what? What we're here to say today is that 500 years later, these began to be fulfilled. These things that just couldn't possibly make sense by the time you finish the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures. You know, the Jewish Bible on its own does not make sense. How could you make sense of this? And it's only in the coming of Jesus Christ that we see the fulfillment of some of these prophecies that are here. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds singing Hosanna. And yet, 
Was he greeted as a king, welcomed, given the throne? No, he was opposed by the leaders of his day and he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He's taken by soldiers as his disciples scatter and run. Was the very prophecy that Jesus quoted that was read earlier this service. He was brought to trial. He was accused of blasphemy for claiming to be God. He received rough injustice from Pilate, the representative of the world power of the nations. And he was crucified on a wooden cross his back ripped open by whips, his hands pierced uh, by nails, and he was left to die. And John's gospel records when the soldiers came by to check uh, that the, 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 the criminals were dead, a soldier stuck a spear into the body of Jesus, bringing forth a sudden flow of water and blood from the body. And what's John doing by saying this strange thing? I think he is invoking these very verses from Zechariah. It is a direct allusion to this cleansing fountain that is being opened up in Jerusalem, a fountain for the forgiveness of sins. We can only fully understand the events of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus by understanding these ancient prophecies, understanding what was being said in the light of them. This moment when Israel uh, and representatively the world show their opposition to God is actually the moment of great victory for God's people. And the victory was a costly victory, was it not? God himself bore the suffering to enable this victory. God in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself, the Bible says, not counting our sins against us, but the good shepherd was taking the punishment our sins deserved himself. He was pierced. He took the death blow for us as the guilty sinner, even though he was sinless. And through the death of Jesus, a fountain was opened up in Jerusalem where guilty sinners can wash and have their sins cleansed completely. All the guilt and their shame can be washed away completely. What these chapters tell us is that the kingdom of God could only come about through this costly sacrifice. That's what the prophecies were setting up Israel to see. And the cross of Christ was, was the place of victory where God's kingdom would become immovable and secure. And Jesus knew that was his mission. Uh, the night before his death, we read it earlier from Mark 14, he gathered his disciples at this Passover meal. He broke bread, uh, and we have symbolized this bread broken before us. And he passed it to them and saying, take, take it, this is my body. His body would be broken for them. And he took a cup of wine, he offered it them to drink, saying, this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant which is poured out for many. I'll tell you the truth, I'll not drink of it again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. He knew as he was heading to the cross, he was fulfilling these ancient prophecies. He was bringing about the kingdom of God. 
He was bearing the pain and the suffering that we could be forgiven and know God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I found it freshly amazing this past week at the detail that we have in Zechariah, written 500 years before Jesus came, to see how God was setting up so we would know the one that he was sending. I don't know whether you're a skeptic here today, um, an agnostic, then I hope that this would cause you to want to look afresh at Jesus. Why don't you examine one of the Gospels? Why don't you look at this more closely? This is incredible fulfillment. This stuff doesn't just happen by accident. It is an amazing confirmation that God is at work. When the Apostle Paul uh, used to go into Jewish synagogues, uh, reasoning with them from the scriptures. He, this is what he did. He explained and proved that the Christ would have to suffer and rise from the dead. And then, having established that, he would talk to them about Jesus, saying, this Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And you've got to believe he used Zechariah, don't you? What an incredible book to use to prove that the Christ must suffer and that Jesus was that Christ. Certainly, if I get an opportunity with a devout rabbi who knows the scriptures, this is one of the places I would go. Lord, give me one this week. I'd love to take them. Well, it's fresh in my head. He is, Jesus is the perfect fit for all the promises of scripture. And his resurrection from the dead is, is the assurance that he did win the victory at the cross. Now, I would imagine that maybe some people are sitting there going, well, yeah, that's very interesting, Paul, but... It's not the end of the world yet, is it? Uh, the world has not ended. And you've just got us all saying over and over again, on that day. Well, do these scriptures not say that this happens on that day? They do, don't they? How do we make sense of that? Well, from Zechariah's viewpoint in history, as he looks forward at this great time in the future, it appears that all these events would happen at once. A bit like, I don't know whether you've gone mountain climbing and you've stood from a distance, you've looked at a mountain range. Uh, here's a nice one coming up. Look at that. Isn't that nice? That's the Rocky Mountain Range. I've had the privilege of seeing that. Haven't walked many of them, to be honest, but uh, driven through them. And, and from a distance, it looks like they're all in the same place. But of course, you know, get up close and you'll discover actually there's quite a big distance between them. And, and I think that's a helpful picture for understanding what's going on here. Zechariah looks forward to the events of the final day and he puts them all together. But actually, as we've come close, we realize that some of these events are separated. Now I want to say to you that chapters 12 and 13, I think have been fulfilled in the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we're kind of awaiting chapter 14, which we'll come to next week. But we need to be clear that from the first coming of Christ, the Bible says we are living in the last days. This is the last day. The coming of Christ signals that we are in the last day. You know, that we're, 24 hours are ticking. And I don't know where we are in that last 
day period. But we're in the last days. Do you want to know where we are in history? This is where we're at. We're near the end. The essential part has been completed. The kingdom has been established in the coming of Christ. Jesus is the kingdom of God. He's come. And he says he's coming back again. He came to bring that cleansing so that rebel sinners could be forgiven. He's coming again to bring it all to completion, to wrap it all up. And I think we need to think about these two things, the fountain and the fire. The fountain that cleanses. How will God's kingdom come about? Only through the suffering of God's shepherd king. It's only there that the rebel sinners can have their guilty stain removed. You can only enter into God's kingdom by coming to this fountain of cleansing. Have you come to this fountain for cleansing? You know, our words, our actions, our thoughts cover us in kind of moral filth, in shame. Um, being religious, turning over a new leaf, trying harder to be different, cannot change our status. What is condemned in these chapters is, is, is not just sort of irreligious behavior, but religious behavior that's wrong. It's these false prophets trying to make their claims. We need to repent of both uh, sin and repent of being religious. What we need is cleansing. We need our sins to be cleansed. If you come to God to have your sins cleansed. Can you see that God has brought this about at great cost to himself, his only son? And all our sins can be forgiven. All our guilt and shame can be washed away. And what I want to say to you is, have you done that today? I can't imagine standing before God on the final day and, and, and him saying, did you, did you not hear? Well, yeah, I did, I did hear. You heard what my son did for you and you didn't do anything about that? Have you come for cleansing? If you have not, then can I urge you today, come and repent of your sins. Ask God to give you a heart that mourns over your sin. And come and receive this forgiveness that he's made possible through his death upon the cross. All you need to do is come to Christ today to be forgiven. The book of Revelation says that a day is coming when it will be too late. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. See, the choice, my friends, is to mourn now because of sin and know the joy of of the cleansing fountain of Christ or to mourn on that day as you see the one who is pierced coming in judgment and it'll be too late. Now is the day of opportunity to get right with him. We enter the kingdom of God through the fountain of Christ's death. But we also need to see here that we will also experience the fire that refines. Look at chapter um, 13, verse 9 again. 
This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. It's clear to me from the whole of scripture and including this section that we should not be surprised when trials come for being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've come today and you're just feeling discouraged because your family does not understand you, they're against you, they make things difficult, they mock you, or, 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 and this is costing you in relationships, can I just say, this is to be expected. This is part of the Christian life. The world rejected God's Messiah King, and it will reject those who follow him. Um, this was the experience, not only of the disciples of Christ who got scattered in the garden, but it was the experience of the church in Jerusalem, wasn't it? Persecution, great persecution came on the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. And when Paul and Barnabas went about preaching the good news and planting churches, they went back to those churches, and it says that they strengthened them in Acts 14, and this is how they strengthened the disciples. I want to strengthen you today as Christians. Ready? Ready to be strengthened? And they encouraged them, they encouraged them to stay to the truth with these words, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. If you're not a Christian here today and you're wanting to know, okay, should I become a Christian? Listen carefully, we're not saying become a Christian and your life's going to be just fantastic. All the best bits you've got now, plus it just gets better. No, that's not that's, that's not being truthful. That's not being honest. If you're looking at being a Christian today, you are going to be following the Christ who suffered because people were in opposition. And you'll be amongst the people who identify with the suffering Messiah. And that will be part of our experience. You know, we, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. But you know, here's the wonderful thing. God in his sovereign grace is able to use these sufferings, these trials, these hardships to refine us as a people and to make us his very strong and joyful people who worship him, who know him, who delight in him, who are the real deal, who stand there on that final day. There's the encouragement. If you've been doing the McShane Bible reading plan that's on the stairwells as you head out, you would have read today in Revelation chapter 7 this, this, this vision of the future, the great multitude in their white robes praising God. And the elder in heaven asks uh, John, who are these? And John says, well, you know, tell me. And he says, okay, these are those who've come through the great tribulation. There's the expectation of the Christian life that we go through many tribulations, hardships. These are the ones who pass through the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's kind of gruesome imagery, isn't it? But it's coming straight back to this language of Zechariah, a fountain opened up in Jerusalem, a fountain of cleansing through the one who was pierced for us. My friends, we are living in the final day. Do you know that? Just to get us orientated, this isn't going to roll on interminably. We're living in the final day. It can be tough to follow Christ. Praise God, there are many joys and many delights. It's not all miserable, right? 
But it can be tough. There can be many hardships. And you know what? This is the way to the kingdom of God, through the fountain that cleanses and through the fire that refines. And we will be amongst those on the final day praising Jesus because it was all worth it. As we stand in his kingdom. Let's pray, shall we?